The spiritual center of this show is really the mid-2000s, or at least it was at one point. I'm not sure what the spiritual center really is, but, well, Michael Moore, he's still in the title of the show, you know? He's still our patron saint, and everything kind of comes out through him in circles, you know? That's how the universe of this podcast has been built. And he resides in the mid-2000s, and so too do we. Anyway, horribly off track already, but that's a long way of saying that I was thinking about a mid to late 2000s figure today by the name of Tucker Max, (laughs) who some of our younger listeners may not know. That's crazy, isn't it? Like Tucker Max just so dominated culture, at least dominated culture for people 18 to 25 for a couple years, you know, 2007, 2008. Did you ever read Tucker Max? I can't say I did. You know who he is, though, right? Well, yeah, because you've told me. Okay. Well, (laughs) Tucker Max was a best-selling author. He had four best-selling books, but the first of them which was the runaway bestseller. You could get it at every like hot topic. You could get it at every urban outfitters, any one of those like clothing stores that had a book section. You would find this one next to like (laughs) Chuck Norris facts. (laughs) You you get, you get this at blue notes along with like the same uh, Nirvana or pink Floyd t-shirt that like every single other kid at your school had. And it was a collection of blog posts. He started as a blogger chronicling his sexual misadventures and it was very bro-y. It was very fratty. No. (laughs) (laughs) The pendulum of culture has swung so far since then in in such a short amount of time. Like when we were older teenagers, it was the era of old school. It was the era of pickup artists. It was a whole different kind of like fratty, sex-drenched culture. And Tucker Max was definitely like one of the key guys of that time. So he would do these blog posts, and I guess he collected them in these books. And I don't know, I didn't particularly like them at the time. I'm sure I would probably like them even less now. They were just stories of like, yeah, and then and then I brought a chick home, and then we were having sex, and then the dog came in the room. Uh, uh, you know, or something like that. Or somebody throws up on somebody by accident during the act, or, you know, so stuff like that you know various comical or unpleasant uh, sexual situations and you know he was very much regarded as like a very sexist figure this was before men's rights activists this was before gamergate this was before somebody like him would have become a symbol of a different kind of sexism well like not just like culturally offensive but politically reactionary yeah exactly he was he was seen as more kind of like the unappealing young grandchild of Hugh Hefner that kind of sexism and there was even a movie based on that book which was horrible so I don't know every year or so maybe every two years I check in on his social media feed to see what Tucker Max is up to because every two years I remember him and I think oh yeah that was uh that that wouldn't fly today like how how's he how's he doing and so you know last time I checked about a year ago he had rebranded himself on social media into kind of a success win guy you know it still said author of four best-selling books but he wasn't playing up the fratty like hookup culture thing like here are two tweets from March 2020 lesson I've learned whenever I seem to get the same life test over and over 
It's almost always because I've not learned a lesson I need to learn or made a change I need to make. Once I focus on the test, then I make the change and the test goes away. I said I'm going to read two, but I'm not going to read two. They're all they're all like that. I get it. <laughs> that that that's what they were like, and it's got a big picture of him smiling against a white backdrop, looking very friendly, looking like a guy who would have a startup. And so this week, I decided to take a look at what he's up to now, and I was blown away because he's taken a much more political turn. Oh, that veered in a direction I didn't expect. I thought you were going to tell me he's gotten really into like wellness or something. Okay, you would think so. I mean, I see that he is the founder of a company called Scribe. Uh, what we do, we help experts, executives, and entrepreneurs turn their ideas into books. Okay, so it seems like a very standard kind of like... A, go- a ghostwriting agency. I read on Wikipedia that he ghostwrote Tiffany Haddish's autobiography. So like, he's had some success, but I don't know if he's still doing that because his Twitter feed right now is this mix of retweets from all across the political spectrum. Well, not all across the political spectrum. He's got one from Scott Adams here, and he's also got one from Edward Snowden. He's got one from somebody who says Florida and Texas should secede and become independent nations. Uh, But he's also like a big anti-vax guy now. Uh, He's (laughs) accusing Joe Biden of brazen authoritarianism for, you know, saying that people should get vaccinated and wear a mask. He says they aren't pretending anymore. The lines are drawn. Each of us will choose to submit to rule by sociopaths like this or will instead rule ourselves. This this is so funny. I mean, because political elites talk so much like there's so much anguish talk about polarization. And it's like, OK, well, if you take the sort of, you know, two median political sensibilities and mash them together, you just get 2021 Tucker Max. And is that really <laughs> what you want? I mean, Elsewhere, he's got this Edward Snowden tweet that he's retweeted where Snowden says America's political power struggle has never been about conservative versus liberal as much as owner versus the owned. You know, a very, very kind of Marxist sounding tweet. Yeah, but but the reason he likes that is because Ed Snowden chose to frame it in like anti-political terms. That's what he <laughs> likes about it. It's not about ideology. It's about who owns what, which is, as we all know, the exact inverse of ideology. Yes, yes, you're right. Because as I'm scrolling through here, he's got a lot of stuff about woke capitalism that he's doing (laughs) (laughs) so anyway i I was very excited to see this i think tucker max has distanced himself from some of his earlier writings i don't think all of his earlier writings were like i think some of them were a little uh fantastical you know i think they were exaggerated a little bit which is strange to me because like none of his stories i thought were all that interesting like they they seemed pretty plausible to me But he always seems to be looking for a new identity, a new brand. So I do hope to check back maybe in six months' time, maybe in a year's time, to give you a further update on where (laughs) Tucker Max has ended on his spiritual journey. Well, I'm sure the people will be waiting with uh, bated breath. I guess we should officially welcome everybody back to another episode of Michael and Us. Hello, everyone. We will, as usual, have some serious stuff to discuss after the kind of schlocky riffs at the beginning. Before we get to any of that, uh, I had a story I wanted to share just because I think it's kind of under-discussed and I think it's uh, absolutely incredible. And, you know, on its face, just uh, very ridiculous and funny. So basically, I think uh, this is tomorrow. By the time this is aired, the uh, government of Canada will have issued an official apology to Italian Canadians. And this is over the internment of Canadians of Italian heritage during the Second World War. Quote, for the simple reason that they were of Italian heritage. That, that phrase comes from uh, a speech given by a liberal member of parliament in the House of Commons last month 
And I mean, the suggestion basically is that the Canadian government targeted people in a racially motivated way, in this case, Italian Canadians. Now, if you know anything about the history of Canada, you'll know that there was this absolutely disgraceful internment of more than 12,000 Japanese Canadians during the Second World War. I mean, people literally taken from their homes, thousands of them forced to work on farms. You know, one of, uh, you know, many very ugly moments in Canada's history that I think is kind of often under-discussed. And so, you know, when you kind of just hear the bare bones of this story, when you kind of hear a rough sketch of it, nothing exactly reads as amiss or or as implausible. Um, But there's a piece by the editor-in-chief of Open Canada, Michael Petro, uh, in the Globe and Mail that goes into some of the history here. And, uh, you know, as he points out, the Canadian government may end up having to issue an apology about this apology once they've given it. The reason for this is that, uh, and I'm going to read from the article now, Michael Petro writes, If we don't count the 100 or so Italian sailors in Canada who were caught off guard by Italy's declaration of war in 1940, the number of internees totals about 500, less than 0.5% of the Italian-Canadian population. There must have been something special about them. What, one wonders, could it have been? Fortunately, historians have studied this topic in detail, so we have answers. Enemies within, Italian and other internees in Canada and abroad is a comprehensive takedown of the claim that Canada, quote, waged a war against ethnicity while interning Italian-Canadians. Instead, the book finds that Benito Mussolini's diplomats in Canada aggressively promoted fascism among Italian-Canadians and met with some success, although only a small minority of Italian-Canadians were involved in fascist organizations. Some people caught the attention of the RCMP, which compiled what historian Luigi Bruti Liberati describes in the book as, quote, a detailed picture of fascist activity in Canada from the largest urban centers, the most distant mining camps. Mr. Liberati notes there are valid reasons to question the accuracy of the RCMP's conclusions, but they were based on evidence, however imperfect, rather than blanket assumptions about the entire community. Mr. Liberati compiled his own biographical database of the internees. He found police had detailed dossiers indicating involvement in fascist organizations for at least 100 of them. Even 500, however, represented a small fraction of the 3,500 Italian-Canadians known to have been members of local fascist groups. Were some wrongly accused? Certainly. And the harm from that injustice persisted. And, you know, he goes on to point out, uh, this is Michael Petra now, that to claim that Italian-Canadians were interned because of their ethnicity suggests they were representative of the entire Italian-Canadian community, which they were not. Um, Suggesting otherwise, he concludes, erases the history of Italian-Canadians who fought fascism at home and abroad instead of cheering its murderous advance. So I just think this is an incredible story. I am not clear on how this uh, survived any kind of like vetting by federal bureaucrats or anything. Uh, It really does seem incredible that this is going to happen, although I suppose there's a chance that it will be called off. But this is mostly flown under the radar in Canada. And I think it's an incredible story that I wanted to uh, that I wanted to share off the top. Well, our next story takes place in the wild world of business. It involves friend of the show, Jeff Bezos. Friend and official sponsor of the show. Oh, fuck, I wish. Anyway, uh, Amazon has made history this week by purchasing MGM and all of its intellectual property for something in the area of $9 billion. So basically, they bought James Bond and a lot of other stuff that they can put on various streaming channels here and there. But James Bond is the big acquisition. James Bond and Jean-Luc Godard's 1987 adaptation of King Lear are the two, they're kind of the two big pillars of this acquisition. You're, you're telling me I'll finally have the opportunity to watch Octopussy on Amazon Prime? Yes. I mean, here in Canada, we've had to endure by watching it on crave 
And in the US, I believe they've had it on HBO Max. But now, fortunately, we've been liberated from those shackles. Now we'll be able to watch it on Amazon Prime. Nine billion dollars, I guess, sounds like a lot of money. But when you think that Jeff Bezos has a personal fortune of like a trillion dollars, I don't know exactly how much he has at this point. But it's like, fuck, like that's barely any money for him. That's like if I like lost twenty dollars on the subway. Not even. Not even. And it's like, well, why does why doesn't he just like buy literally everything? What's stopping him at this point? He should just buy everything else. I mean, very little. That's uh, that's kind of what he's on course to do. Actually, this $9 billion figure will be relevant to something I want to bring up about Jeff Bezos uh, later in the episode when we're kind of at the meat of things. But I actually had a, a piece of culture and entertainment uh, news that I want to discuss, which was uh, this J.J. Abrams thing which you may have seen, uh, where he says that it probably would have been better if they'd approached the Star Wars sequel trilogy with a plan. I bring this up partly because the first ever episode we discussed on our Patreon was Star Wars The Last Jedi, which I think is about the worst indictment of the capitalist mode of production, as any could be. Uh, The film or our Patreon episode? (laughs) The film, the film, obviously. I mean, you say that, but it's the best of the three sequels, so... (laughs) I I have to say, uh, I do disagree with J.J. Abrams here, because, you know, I think history's taught us that all forms of planning, uh, however kind of smaller modest inevitably lead to stalinism and kind of totalitarian control of everything and i think what the jeff bezos news and what the new star wars trilogy teach us is that only a a free market in which you know like two companies uh control a majority stake in all of culture and entertainment is actually capable of producing good movies yeah i did see that jj abrams quote and i was kind of of two minds about it because i think i disagree with him in the principle that great art comes from rigorous planning like three movies in advance I mean, the Marvel universe is rigorously planned, and I'm not a huge fan of that. Well, because what does rigorous planning mean in this context, right? It doesn't mean rigorous artistic planning, really. It just means that the process by which, like, every script, every image, and every line of dialogue, like, the process through which all those things are subjected to, like, you know, scrutiny by 30 different committees that all represent, you know, like, every scene's got to be a level in a video game. It's also, you know, you got to be able to make toys out of it. It's got to sell in China. It's got to respond to, you know, whatever market signals are in the air at like precisely the moment the meeting is happening whatever having more of that process won't make these movies better you're probably right it'll probably make them worse because in the kind of uh, anarchic and chaotic way that a lot of these things are made now marketized as it is once in a while you do get something that at least has a smack of something interesting or is maybe kind of good okay but then on the other hand we have the evidence of the three star wars sequels which particularly by the third one create together a very strong case for planning for the value of planning (laughs) i I mean (laughs) they're a real mess it is like pretty funny that a company that huge and with that much at stake made these movies in such a hilariously amateurish and incompetent way with each movie contradicting whatever happened in the one before until by the third one they were like introducing all of these new characters at the 11th hour characters that were major characters in the previous movie are like barely on screen yeah but i mean this isn't the lack of planning that i like in in art you know this isn't real spontaneity this is a focus group pandering so really like the disney version of planning and the disney version of lack of planning seek to accomplish the same goal which is to create kind of a 
flavorless, textureless entertainment paste. We want the exciting things that we see in sci-fi and like sci-fi movies and books. We want that to come true one day. In fact, I think hardly anyone in the public knows that this is happening. Like, how do we you know, get this message across? Hey, really cool stuff's happening, you know? Tune in. SpaceX is like no other rocket company. They're in an unglamorous building, in the middle of nowhere, in kind of a industrial zone. But when you walk into the doors and all of a sudden you see they're making these pristine, gorgeous rockets. It feels like you've walked into a factory on another planet. Well, speaking of oligarchs, have we got one for you this week. We're talking about Elon Musk, and we do, I guess, have a movie that we're talking about, sort of. I mean... Luke dug this up, and I mean, in a way we're punching up, but in a way we're also punching down, because this is some sort of 35-minute YouTube propaganda film that shows no signs of being official propaganda. It's called (laughs) The Rise of SpaceX, and it is this documentary. I mean, if you search Elon Musk documentary, this is one of the first things you find. Like, Luke was looking for just a real puff piece, hopefully something that was made by one of Elon Musk's companies about what a great guy he was. And we did find that, but it seems that this may be a fan film. Uh, It's got millions of views, so we're punching up in the sense that it's reached more people and touched more lives than this podcast has. But um, (laughs) it seems to be the work of some kind of earnest Elon Musk fan who assembled a lot of like interview and documentary clips to create this amateurish hero's journey well i mean you know i didn't choose it to pick on the to pick on the film um i think the film is more just emblematic of something uh that i wanted to talk about the film is is perfectly charming i disagree you know wrong wrong (laughs) it, it kind of presents you know various stages of you know spacex's development like a kind of technical briefing like you're sort of being let in on these like exciting details of this kind of exciting scientific journey that's doing all this incredible stuff but i should say the reason i want to discuss this actually there there is a topical reason for this and that's that there was actually a pretty incredible development in congress this past week we brought up jeff bezos uh already on the show people uh, may not know i think it's less high profile than uh, spacex but jeff bezos has his own space company called uh blue origin and it and uh, spacex are basically now in competition i mean where we're at now is that the companies owned by the two richest men on the planet are now competing for you know who's going to get to own the biggest chunk of space in the decades ahead this played out in congress this week because there was a very lucrative contract from nasa for landing astronauts astronauts on the moon for the first time, I guess, since 1972. Blue Origin and its little coalition of companies was expected to get the contract, but the contract actually went to SpaceX instead. Um, now, hilariously, uh, NASA justified this by saying that it was that it was giving the contract to SpaceX to, quote, preserve a competitive environment, um, which is, it's like, we chose we chose one corporate monopoly over the other one to preserve competition is, uh, is quite a howler. But incredibly, uh, there is now an amendment that's been introduced 
introduced to something called the Endless Frontier Act, which incidentally, I love the way that legislation is titled. This is a $10 billion amendment, um, so slightly more than uh, Jeff Bezos had to spend to buy MGM. But this is an amendment by the Washington Senator Maria Cantwell, and it is basically just a bailout for Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos, who did not get this contract. It's like, uh, they failed to get the contract, but we have to figure out a way to give them $10 billion anyway. This is justified under the extremely dubious auspices that it's going to help fund uh, scientific research, technological development, that kind of thing. Um, But it's basically a handout to a company that just happens to be based in uh, Maria Cantwell's home state. So it's like the kind of pork barrel spending that happens with like the military all the time, but now it's happening for like privately led space development. Now, a certain junior senator from Vermont has his own amendment, which is trying to nullify Cantwell's amendment. And Bernie Sanders actually gave a pretty good speech on the floor of the Senate this week. Uh, in which he attacked not only this $10 billion handout to Jeff Bezos, but also the whole idea of privately led space exploration and development. You know, when we were younger and Neil Armstrong made it to the moon, there was incredible joy and pride in this country that the United States of America did something that people forever had thought was impossible. We sent a man to the moon, an extraordinary accomplishment And the entire world watched that event with bated breath. Just an extraordinary accomplishment for all of humanity, not just the United States, but we had a special pride because that was our project. And I worry very much that what we're seeing now is two of the wealthiest people in this country, Mr. Musk, Elon Musk, and Mr. Bezos, deciding that they are going to take control over our space efforts to get to uh, the moon and maybe even the extraordinary accomplishment of getting to Mars and what an accomplishment that would be. But I have to tell you that I have a real problem, that to a significant degree we are privatizing that effort so that as a nation we will not sit with pride in saying we did it. But instead say, well, you know, maybe Mr. Bezos or or maybe Mr. Musk uh, sent somebody to the moon or even to Mars. This is something that should be an American effort that all of us should be part of and not simply be uh, a uh, private corporation uh, undertaking. Now, you said you didn't find the documentary kind of like charming or nice. Uh, I I did not. I did not. No, I mean, it's just... It is a shittier version of the movie that would play if you went to the lobby at SpaceX and you were waiting there to have a meeting with somebody. (laughs) This would be what's on the wall. I wouldn't like it there. I don't like it here. It was short, though. So I appreciated that. And it gave me a bit of a rundown of what SpaceX is and how it perceives itself. So I appreciate it for that. Right. Well, that's kind of the main reason I wanted us to watch it and discuss it was, you know, I think this is what, um, you know, I wanted to try to explain why is it that when anybody makes fun of Elon Musk on Twitter, their mentions get flooded with just like Elon Musk sycophants who think he's like extremely cool and, and whatever? He looks a lot like Frank D'Angelo. How come nobody ever has ever pointed that out? 
I think a documentary like this, I mean, charming maybe is is uh, too too polite a word, but I think it it kind of gets at what the appeal of Elon Musk's brand is to a lot of people. So SpaceX is like no other rocket company. <laughs> They're in an unglamorous building in the middle of nowhere in an industrial zone. I mean, honestly, that doesn't sound so strange to me. I mean, how many rocket companies are in the middle of like downtown Manhattan or on the Champs-Elysees? I mean, of course, it'd be in an industrial zone in the middle of nowhere. But anyway, that's what they say. But it seems very unglamorous from the outside. But you walk in and it's a freaking Willy Wonka chocolate factory of rockets in there. Of science. (laughs) They're making so many cool things. It's like, what if the Air and Space Museum in Washington had a bunch of people building the air and space? Well, that's what we got here. And Elon Musk, he's a bit of an unlikely guy to run a company like this because he doesn't have a physics background. In fact, he is self-taught. Would you believe that? I mean, fuck, some of you have tried to teach yourself Mandarin and you couldn't even do that. But this guy, he doesn't have an aerospace degree. He's just read a lot of books, talked to a lot of people. And now he's uh, the dream weaver of the next century. And, you know, we we need guys like this. We need guys who aren't content with just the ground under their feet. We need a guy who is looking beyond. As Matthew McConaughey said in Interstellar, we used to be explorers, not caretakers. And (laughs) that's what this man is. He's an explorer. (laughs) Yeah, he says uh, at the beginning of this movie, you know, we want the things in sci-fi books and movies. You know, we want one day for those things to be true, which is the kind of uh, cringeworthy thing that Elon Musk uh, says pretty regularly. He's talking about sex robots that's what he's talking about but they cut that they cut that part out but i mean i think people hear stuff like that and it's like if you have a less cynical frame of mind than you or i uh it's pretty exciting right yeah who wouldn't want to hang out with chewbacca and luke skywalker and the whole gang who wouldn't want to go on a mission with ripley that's what this guy wants to bring well i mean both jeff bezos and elon musk i mean i guess you could say they have uh somewhat competing speculative visions for what our future in space is going to look like although honestly they're both pretty similar one of the videos that comes up as you know a suggested watch next uh if you watch this documentary is a ted talk where elon musk is talking about like humanity as an as a multi-planetary species and both him and jeff bezos have at times been incredibly kind of gushing and effusive about where space travel is headed so you know they talk about population, you know, a population of trillions of people, not billions, you know, living on all different planets. Jeff Bezos has talked about, um, you know, a future where we produce, you know, thousands and thousands of Mozarts and Einsteins, that kind of thing. There are also uh, companies like uh, Planetary Resources. There's another one called Deep Space Industries. They've talked about the possible mining. You know, these, these are real companies that have real investors, and they've talked about the prospect of mining precious metals from asteroids. Um, you can find pretty sensationalist journalism, science journalism, that will tell you that a single typical asteroid in the asteroid belt has precious metals worth 20 trillion dollars just in one asteroid so i mean if that were true and enough asteroids could be mined i mean we'd we'd, you know we'd be talking about like a new industrial revolution um it'd be kind of like when europeans arrived in the americas and plundered all the gold and it created a massive economic surplus in europe you know it'd be like that but probably like 10 or 20 or even 100 fold i don't know i haven't done the math so this is the kind of thing like if you're into this stuff it's the kind of thing you hear Uh, i have to say watching this i also thought of a movie i saw 
saw for the first time recently, uh, The Martian, which I think you've seen as well, right? I've seen it, and it was a favorite film of President Obama, no less. Would you Would you believe that? I would. I would believe it. I mean, it's about as uh, it's about as normy a movie as they come. I think you referred to it as "I fucking love science." The movie to me once, which it, <laughs> yeah. which is pretty much what it is. Now I have to say that's another thing. I mean, I you know it's not a brilliant movie, but I found it pretty entertaining um, because sure. space is cool. You know, you know when when Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut, was in space, I watched his like videos where he would uh, you know show you how to make a peanut butter sandwich in space and stuff. And I gotta say, I thought it was pretty neat. So when a lot of people uh, think about Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Blue Origin or SpaceX, this is the kind of thing they have in mind, right? You know, they have in mind asteroid mining. They have in mind, you know, giant space stations where people grow their own food and, and which, you know, produce their own oxygen. You know, they have in mind kind of Martian colonies and things like that. And, and it's international waters, so anything goes. You know? Well, I mean... And, and- anything goes and and they have that in mind too (laughs) well i'm glad you brought that up because uh you know despite this kind of uh this very utopian gloss that uh musk and bezos have put on this i mean it's also the case that you know musk when he has talked about martian colonization he honestly makes it sound like just like an arandian nightmare the founding documents for uh his starlink project officially state that they're not going to recognize international law on mars they're not going to be bound to any kind of uh any kind of temporal law. And instead, he talks about a kind of off-world Randianism with, quote-unquote, self-governing principles, so i.e. the ones determined by him and by the company. Sounds fine to me. If all these fuckers want to go up to Mars and murder each other, I'm happy with that. Well, here's the thing. So, you know, it takes some unbelievably create... I mean, basically create, you know, takes like mathematical sorcery given the current technology for any of this to be possible you know musk every few years will say like oh we're two years from landing people on mars and it never seems to happen i think his last estimate was uh like 2018 they were going to send a mission to mars hasn't hasn't happened but another thing he talked about is that because it would be you know be so expensive for people to book passage uh, on a trip to mars musk has said you know well, well people could just like pay for it with like their labor once they get to Mars. So in other words, in this supposedly idealistic blueprint of the future, Mars is like a libertarian nightmare where you arrive in indentured servitude to a private corporation. I fucking love science, everybody. Well, it sounds like a great vision for the future, but would you believe that there are some people who are against it? In this documentary, (laughs) we hear of such naysayers as Neil Armstrong and Gene Cernan, who both testified against his vision of commercial space flight. Did, did you like the part where Elon Musk cries when they when they read those quotes to him? You know, I, I did like that, actually. <laughs> that was the charming part of this film you were talking about. You know, there are American heroes who don't like this idea. Neil Armstrong, Gene Cernan have both testified against commercial space flight in the way that you're developing it. And I wonder what you think of that. Now is the time to overrule this administration's pledge to mediocrity. I was very sad to see that uh, because those guys are, yeah, you know, those guys are heroes of mine, so it's really tough. They inspired you to do this, didn't they? Yes. 
and he's faced a lot of stumbling blocks too <laughs> like the rockets not working <laughs> yeah 2008 was a disastrous year for him with a number of failed rocket attempts his car company hemorrhaging money the world economy collapses and his damn marriage falls apart it's the worst year of his life but you know when the going gets tough the tough get going more recently he's been able to launch some rockets uh, he's hosted snl everything's going well for elon musk now and the future is bright it's probably worth just you know saying pretty categorically that like most of what jeff bezos and elon musk talk about when they talk about humanity's future in space i mean it's it's almost certainly bullshit these guys have so much money that you know they kind of have to invest money in something and one way of interpreting all this money they're putting into these companies is that you know it's just a kind of speculative investment you know in case the technology ever enables the kinds of things they're talking about if this stuff is ever profitable it's it's probably the case that the profit will come from like much more banal stuff than like beautiful orbital space stations on which millions of people live or whatever there's a recent report which estimated that elon musk already owns uh, more than a quarter of all active satellites orbiting the earth so this utopian vision for outer space at least in the short term has a lot more to do with you know monopolizing planet earth's infrastructure from space anyway let's assume for a second that the techno utopian predictions that form the basis for all of the like hype around companies like spacex and blue origin let's assume for a second that those things were true it's always incredible to me how these people speak about the future in space as if like you leave the earth's orbit and the social and political relations that you know exist on earth just like stop once you achieve escape velocity and are outside the atmosphere like all relationships are harmonious what what is these guys's vision for kind of like space socialism they never seem to specify it i think it's sort of like space national socialism if you catch my drift <laughs> i think it's an off-world colony with no laws except that elon musk is the leader and he dictates the laws i i picture what i picture is uh that movie elysium have you ever seen that movie the one with matt damon no no i haven't actually it's well it's the, it was the successor by that director that made district nine you know it's it's not bad it's not brilliant but it's not bad and basically in that one almost everybody that lives on planet earth has to do like work in like glorified amazon warehouses uh the cops are all these like robots that terrorize people meanwhile just all the rich people live on this like beautiful orbital space station that shoots down like spaceships full of refugees that are trying to escape planet earth and get to it the, the station being called elysium and it's like, I think we can safely assume that if technology ever allows for the construction of a space station like that, and people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are in charge of building it, it's just going to be an oasis for the rich, an orbital gated community by any other name. Why would it be different? To turn back to the documentary for a minute, I mean, I think, again, one of the things that's wrong with the way things like SpaceX and, and Blue Origin tend to be covered, but also one of the things that's so appealing uh, when you watch something like this or potentially appealing is that, you know, it shows you science without politics, right? There's no sense from this film that Elon Musk is anything other than just like a really curious guy who loves science and is excited by the idea of like, you know, realizing his boyhood fantasies of, you know, settling on Mars or, or shooting rockets into space. So I feel like if you're somebody who's kind of troubled by the news or finds 21st century society kind of lacking in any kind of uh, common narrative in which to invest yourself, stuff like this is an alternative. What does Musk say uh, towards the end of this film when they've, you know, landed the rocket or whatever? He says, you know, this is a win, something to the effect of this is a win for all of humanity. There's a lot of bad news at the moment. I hope this puts a smile on your face today or something like that. If you watch this, um, you know, if you consume this stuff kind of absent any kind of wider political or social perspective, 
it just seems like a cool science guy doing, you know, fun science things to benefit the whole human race. I'm not one to indulge in like, you know, 1960s nostalgia or whatever, but it is a case that like previous generations did get to see a successful mission to the moon. They got to see Yuri Gagarin go into orbit. You know, and obviously those things were very much colored by the wider context of the Cold War. But nonetheless, I think they gave people some kind of commonly recognized narrative of progress in which to invest themselves. And I think we're very much absent something like that now. You were directing me to the YouTube comments on this video, which were basically like what what you would expect they would be. And it seems like Elon Musk is kind of a like he's a lifestyle brand as much as anything. A lot of people see him as like a like an aspirational or, or an inspirational figure. He's what I imagine the success win version of Tucker Max uh, would have been really into during that phase of his career. I'm sure that goes hand in hand with his sort of apolitical public image. I mean, this is one of the basic PR tactics of a lot of billionaires today, at least, you know, the ones that people have heard of. They invest themselves heavily in, you know, getting press, which is all about their kind of eccentric lifestyle habits and things like that. A lot of them are very, they take great care to emphasize how kind of ritualized their daily routines are, uh, how kind of spartanly and ascetically they live. Jack Dorsey from Twitter is an example of that. Musk, I think, is probably the most successful at doing this, and he's been able to do it often just by saying stuff that sounds cool and it gets picked up very credulously because, you know, people know it will get clicks, but it never has to bear any fruit. He can say something trippy like, oh, what if, you know, maybe all of reality is a simulation, or he can say, we're going to land rockets uh, on Mars in 2018 and it cannot happen. And it kind of doesn't matter because he's successfully, you know, he successfully built the image that he wanted to build and people become invested in it. Anyway, it's too bad that for this generation of space nerds, the ringleaders are Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and also guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson. We used to have real men like Buzz Aldrin. Well, I was going to say we should end the segment by leaving people with Carl Sagan talking about socialism. But are you a socialist? Uh, I'm not sure what a socialist is. Well, but, I I believe that the, but I believe that the government has a responsibility to care for the people. I'm not talking about dole. I'm talking about making people self-reliant, people able to take care of themselves. There are countries which are perfectly able to do that. The United States is an extremely rich country. It's perfectly able to do that. It chooses not to. It chooses to have homeless people. It chooses... It's, we are 19th in the world in infant mortality. 18 other countries save the lives of their babies better than we. How come? They just spend more money on it. They care about their babies more than we care about ours. I think it's a disgrace. And uh, this country has vast wealth. You just look at what something like uh, Star Wars, the money spent on Star Wars, already spent $20 billion on it. If these guys are permitted to go ahead, they will spend a trillion dollars on Star Wars. Think of what that money could be used for to educate, to help, to bring people up to a sense of, of uh, self-confidence, to improve not just the happiness of people in America, but their economic standing, to improve the competitiveness of the United States compared to other countries. We are using money for the wrong stuff. Before we close out the show, I would like to introduce a new enemy of the podcast. Past enemies of the podcast have included, of course, Tom Hanks. Uh, you know, he's he's really public enemy number one here. We really we really despise uh, the criminal Tom Hanks on this podcast for being a gentrifier of culture, for being a self-appointed representative of the American dream. This is well documented. Yeah, and actually, Will's doubling down on that talking point is uh, is the cause of our own. What is still, I think, our only uh, one star review of the podcast. 
but it finally occurred to me this week that we were going after small potatoes. We should have gone for the big kahuna, the man who pulls Tom Hanks's puppet strings. I'm referring to Steven Spielberg. (laughs) You know, we've talked about Steven Spielberg on this podcast before. We've talked about some of his movies. I feel like I have, whenever he's come up, struck a sort of centrist position on the issue. I have regarded him as a master technician, but somebody whose ideas do not move me. I can see the error in my ways. I looked up his net worth and it is $3.7 billion. And I've seen some pictures of him and I think there is great evil behind those eyes. And the more that I think about him, the more I think of the posture that he strikes when he does interviews, when he's just sitting there in his blue jeans and his like brown jacket and, you know, his casually rumpled appearance. And he's saying things like, well, gosh, you know, I always just I always just believed in the power of telling stories. You know, (laughs) I I always, you know, when I was a kid, I just had like an eight millimeter camera and we would uh, do stories in my backyard. And that's kind of what I always wanted to do. And that's what I that's what I still do in Hollywood. I'm sorry, but this this man, I believe, is capable of great evil. And I do, do I have proof of that? No. But no man can make $3.7 billion and still act that way. So I'm putting him on notice. The, the official Michael and Us enemies list now has two names. <laughs> and the reason that this was sparked is because Spielberg is embarking on a new movie that's going to be about his childhood. It's going to be an autobiographical film. I don't know if it's literally about his childhood, but it's like th- that's the basis of it. Seth Rogen is going to play his dad. Michelle Williams is going to play his mom. And this just made me fume with anger. This this attempt, you know, in his later years to marshal all of the best technicians in Hollywood to tell this story of like what a real person he is, probably dramatize that image of him as a as a little boy with his eight millimeter movie camera running around the backyard as if he's not as if he's not capable of great evil. This has to stop now. And we're and we are starting the campaign now. Well, that's the show for this week, folks. Just a reminder, you can find one extra episode a week at patreon.com slash Michael and us. Recent episodes have included a really hot one on Bill Gates, another famous oligarch, where we discuss the Netflix documentary series Inside Bill's Brain, Decoding Bill Gates. And Luke has a long and fascinating interview with the science fiction author and intellectual property law expert, Cory Doctorow. Yeah, extra episodes and more at patreon.com slash Michael and us. See you next week. Now, Watch this drive. Turned on my television to Lucky Channel 13. Tuned in Mr. Criswell, he sure was on the beam. With his predictions, with his convictions of what the future will be. And it made a lot of sense to me. Many things of the future Criswell predicts What the world's gonna do Trips to the stars Vacations on Mars Snow in July The strangest new car And if Criswell predicts it You can bet it comes true